This is KPFK. for music and I'm trying to wake up in a rainy, rainy day and I'm saying good morning everybody you're on Voices from the Frontlines your national movement building show wake up and smell the coffee which I wish I had this is Eric Mann and uh, we're here with Gary Baca alone in the rain and we're going to give you a good show today so what we have is first we're going to it's a very newsy show. So the first thing we're going to do is listen to Amy Goodman's headlines, and I'm going to comment. Then I'm going to try to deal with the imminent U.S. war, ongoing U.S. war against the People's Republic in China and what we can do. I have three really good articles. Uh, one is hopeful about the Chinese-Russian alliance. One is called Eight Contradictions in the Imperialist Rules-Based Order by... VJ Prashad and the Tricontinental team. And one is called The U.S. is Set on a Path to War with China, What is to be Done, written by K.J. No and the Call Collective. And we're also going to be dealing with uh, and listening to uh, Chani Martinez, a voice on the front lines, who's going to tell you about, in particular, the strike of SEIU workers, tremendous support from UTLA, and the Strategy Center's Bus Riders Union film Thursday night, March 30th at 7 p.m. The amazing film Bus Riders Union by Haskell Wexler. If you're interested in getting tickets, you can go online at thestrategycenter.org. So with that, let's hear Amy Goodman and our headlines about today's news. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations warns in a new report the world's on pace to blow past a critical global heating threshold by the early 2030s unless nations take immediate and dramatic steps to mitigate the climate catastrophe. The U.N.'s Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said Monday the planet's on course to warm by an average of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels within a decade, causing irreversible damage to human populations and ecosystems. The report warns of worsening heat waves, flooding, drought, rising sea levels, famine, mass extinction and the spread of infectious diseases. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres announced the findings Monday, saying a livable future for all is still possible if nations take urgent action. The 1.5 degree limit is achievable, but it will take a quantum leap in climate action. 
This report is a clarion call to massively fast-track climate efforts by every country and every sector and on every time frame. In short, our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. Here in the United States, climate activists have organized a day of action today against key banks they say are fueling global heating. We'll have more on the IPCC report and today's protests after headlines. New research finds drought killed 43,000 people in Somalia last year while leaving 5 million people with acute food shortages. Nearly 2 million children remain at risk of malnutrition. Humanitarian aid groups and climate scientists warn Somalia and other parts of the Horn of Africa face a sixth consecutive failed rainy season. And conditions this year are even worse than 2011, when famine killed an estimated quarter million people in Somalia. Russia's defense ministry says it scrambled a fighter jet Monday to intercept a pair of U.S. Air Force B-52 bombers flying over the Baltic Sea. The Russian fighter reportedly returned to its base after the nuclear-capable U.S. bombers moved away from Russia's border. The incident came as Ukraine's defense ministry said it destroyed a train carrying cruise missiles bound for Russia's Black Sea fleet at a station in the Russian-annexed Crimean Peninsula. In Brussels, European Union ministers agreed Monday to provide Ukraine with one million artillery shells over the next year while replenishing their own stockpiles of ammunition. Meanwhile, the Biden administration approved a new $350 million military aid package for Ukraine. The U.S. State Department said Monday all sides committed war crimes and crimes against humanity during the recent conflict in northern Ethiopia. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced the findings from Washington, D.C. Monday, just days after his return from Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, where Blinken met with the prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, and representatives of the Tigray People's Liberation Front. The conflict in northern Ethiopia was devastating. Men, women and children were killed. Women and girls were subject to horrific forms of sexual violence. Thousands were forcibly displaced from their homes. Entire communities were specifically targeted based on their ethnicity. Many of these actions were not random or a mere byproduct of war. They were calculated and deliberate. Blinken stopped short of stating the Ethiopian government's atrocities in Tigray constituted genocide. In Kenya, police tear-gassed a convoy carrying opposition leader Raila Odinga in the capital, Nairobi, Monday, as he led protests against President William Ruto's government and high inflation. A university student was reportedly shot dead at a demonstration in the city of Kisumu. They were some of the largest anti-government protests in Kenya since Odinga narrowly lost to Ruto last August. In South Africa, thousands of protesters marched in cities nationwide Monday, demanding President Cyril Ramaphosa resign over widespread unemployment and rolling blackouts. South Africa's National Police Agency said officers had arrested more than 550 protesters since Sunday. About half of all young people in South Africa are unemployed. Meanwhile, South Africa's public electric utility continues to impose rolling blackouts of up to 10 hours a day as demand for electricity exceeds supply. 
The French government narrowly survived a pair of no-confidence votes in Parliament Monday after President Emmanuel Macron rammed through an unpopular law by executive fiat, raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. The failure of the no-confidence votes sparked fresh protests across France, with police firing tear gas at demonstrators in Lille and Bordeaux, and protesters setting piles of uncollected trash on fire in central Paris. This is French Member of Parliament Mathilde Panot speaking just after Monday. As you could have understood, the hundreds of thousands of people who are now gathering together every day in the entire country since last Thursday and since Macron bypassed the assembly will not stop just because this motion of no confidence has barely failed, just lacking nine little votes. Nothing has been fixed in the country, and the country continues to head towards a political crisis that Macron himself started. Unions and French opposition parties have called a ninth nationwide day of strikes and protests Thursday. In Washington, D.C., a federal jury has found four members of the far-right Oath Keepers militia group guilty of felony and misdemeanor charges, including obstructing an official proceeding over their roles in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. The four faced prison terms of up to 20 years. Their convictions on Monday came as federal prosecutors in a separate trial rested their case against former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio and and four other defendants who face charges of seditious conspiracy. Amazon's announced plans to lay off 9,000 more workers in the coming weeks. The layoffs build on 18,000 job cuts at Amazon that began in November and extended into January. U.S. high-tech firms have laid off more than 300,000 workers this year. Well, hey, everybody. This is Eric Mann. Uh, you're back on Voices from the Front Lines. You're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. Uh, you know, I'm a, as organizers, we're very optimistic people, but uh, the world is coming to an end. I know that's a—how's uh, <clears throat> that for a good morning, wake up and smell the revolution— but the world is coming to an end if we don't stop it, which, and the difficulty is I'm not sure who the we is. So I'm just going to give you some hard facts about the truth and then out of the truth or my perception of the truth, we can figure out what we want to do about it, okay? The first thing is uh, the big shout out to Baji and to uh, the folks in Atlanta who are fighting against Cop City, that was on the last show before, uh, the militarization of the police and finding these kind of test cases, as we did, to get the police out of the, to get the tanks out of the schools. So the uh, Stop Cop City is something we should all be looking at and figuring out how to help the people in Atlanta, which is definitely a national uh, movement. There's so much to talk about in Amy's headlines, but I want to focus on two. Uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, is now saying the world is at the tipping point, and now they're using 2030 and the 1.5 degrees Celsius. So let me just talk to you a little bit of what that means and what we can do, and then I want to deal with the U.S. war against China. Um well, you know, since pre-industrial levels, they call it, so most of the climate change began in 1880, 1850s, with the beginning of steam engines and a lot of use of coal for energy. 
But shockingly, the biggest massive takeoff is since 1950, 1950, when the post-war boom developed and the massive use of automobiles and the massive use of chemicals sort of changed the world. So imagine we're in 2023, not 100 years, not even 100 years later. And you know, I don't do the archaeology well, but we know there's millions and billions of years of world history and planetary history. Imagine that Homo sapiens, in particularly in a capitalist form of organization, are on course to destroy the entire planet in a hundred years, and they call it Western civilization, when in fact it's Western barbarism. But the more fundamental question, if you go to these United Nations conferences, as I do, and you go to the United Nations Framework Climate Change Conference, UNFCCC, as five of us did in 2015, you see the level of the catastrophe because the level of this climate change, and I want to get to the 1.5 degrees Celsius in a minute, is pretty much unstoppable unless entire civilizations, entire countries just say reducing greenhouse gases is the central question facing our society. And we're going to do everything we can. Well, what is everything we can? I mean, the first thing is, as the Strategy Center says, no cars in LA, and we mean that. So can you even imagine a city in Los Angeles with no cars? We sort of began to see it during COVID. But the emissions alone from automobiles are 50% of the greenhouse gases in Los Angeles. Remember, the key to everything is slowing down and stopping, and capitalism does not slow down or stop. Are you going to stop energy production? Because that's what it is. Are you going to stop electricity? Are you going to stop autos? Are you going to stop uh, factories from running? The entire civilization is based on the use of fossil fuels. So it would only take the People's Republic of China, who has the power to sort of outlaw some things. And I'm going to go back into, in future shows, indicating the type of changes that the People's Republic of China has been made to, for instance, stop the use of autos in certain areas, to shut down industry for several days. And it's interesting when you listen to MSNBC and the other um, business shows, they say, well... Sure, they can do it because they don't have our democracy, which is a pretty funny joke. So, yeah, the, the the Chinese government can issue edicts, enforce it by the state and the police to reduce greenhouse gases. And the United States so-called free enterprise system, of course, cannot and will not. So, you know, it has been calling on deaf ears, but... I have to repeat it because I have no choice. The Strategy Center and Bus Riders Union plan in Los Angeles, which is to me the very best climate change campaign, calls for, uh, first of all, rebuilding the bus system with free public transportation and 24-hour, 24-7 service, adding 2 million hours of bus service, 
because those of you who are transit dependent know the bus never comes. And what's the sense? And then making it free. But I'm telling you, if it's free and it doesn't come, that's nothing. So we're calling on Mayor Bass with her four votes. We're calling on the MTA to immediately add two to three million hours, hours of service onto the street buy 1,000 zero-emission buses, hire lots of bus operators, get the police off the buses and trains, replace them with 500 community conductors who are trained in conflict resolution, not police, uh, and to start a campaign for no cars, no way. And it is related because you can't really stop the use of cars if the public transportation system is run into the ground. And we have to stop all real construction because these are billion, billion dollar rail projects. So if you're interested, you can come to the film, Bus Riders Union, Thursday, March 30th, where the Bus Riders Union is going to talk about all our plans. And you're going to see an amazing feature-length film by Haskell Wexler. So if you're interested in that film, if you're interested in helping the Bus Riders Union reduce greenhouse gases, then go on thestrategycenter.org and you can check out how to get a ticket. Um, the second thing that's directly related is the growing droughts, floods, and famines in Africa. Uh, the greenhouse gases that, which Amy talked about, the greenhouse gases that we produce in LA do not stay, stay in LA. They all go up into the atmosphere and then they warm the ocean. And there's a cumulative effect of all these emissions. And it leads to the droughts and floods and famines in Africa. The Strategy Center is trying to have an international campaign to stop this. But, folks, we are not as powerful as the MTA. But at least, again, you see an inspiring film because we are going to try again. We have no choice. The planet leaves us no choice. The people in Africa leave us no choice. So we will do the very best we can. Now, and then, Gary, could you put some music on? And I just want to take a music break to not hear my own voice. And then I'm going to get into the, the three articles about the People's Republic of China, one about President Xi's trip to Russia. Second is a contradiction in the imperialist-based rules order by uh, Vijay Prashad. And the third is the U.S. set on a path to war with China. What is to be done? Um, so I think we're going to call on, uh, I think Gary went out. So he's allowed to. He's here all morning. When he comes back, we're going to get to Channing Martinez who was trying to go out to an 8.30 picket at Roosevelt High School um, in support of the SEIU workers who are, God, the, the school workers, the school bus drivers, being paid just outrageously low uh, wages by the district. They've been offered a 5.3% raise over uh, the next three years when you know that Social Security is going up 7 to 8% per year. So I'm going to get to, to China, and then as soon as Gary gets back, we're going to call Channing. 
I think the main thing that we know in the United States, this is Eric Mann, you're on Voices from the Frontlines, is that the United States is presently at war with the People's Republic of China. So I'm going to start with Vijay's article, Eight Contradiction in the Imperialist Rules-Based Order, and the contributors include Keratui Opuka from Ghana, Manuel Portole from uh, Patria Grande, the Federation Rural, Debbie Venezueli, a research fellow, and Vijay Prashad. So he's going to talk about eight contradictions. I'm going to read you the first one. The contradiction between moribund imperialism and emerging successful socialism led by China. So the first thing you need to know is the reason why the United States is starting a war with China is at war with China. is because China is succeeding and the United States is failing. So now reading on. This contradiction is intensified because of the peaceful rise of socialism with Chinese characteristics. For the first time in 500 years, the Atlantic imperialist powers are confronted by a large, non-white economic power that can compete with them. This became clear in 2013 when China's GDP and purchasing power parity, PPP, overtook that of the United States. You got that? 2013. China accomplished this in a much shorter period than the West, with a significant larger population without colonies, enslaving others, or military conquest. Whilst China stands for peace relations, the U.S. has become increasingly bellicose. Now, the U.S. has led the imperialist camp since World War II. Post-Angela Merkel, and with the advent of the Ukraine military operation, the U.S. strategically subordinates dominant sections of European and Japanese bourgeoisie. This has resulted in weakening inter-imperialist contradictions. The U.S. first permitted and then demanded that both Japan, the third largest economy in the world, and Germany, the fourth largest, two fascists during World War II, greatly increase their military expenditure. The result has been the ending of Europeans' economic relationship with Russia, damage to the European economy, and most of Europe's political elite to full U.S. subordination. Some large sections of German capital are heavily dependent on trade with China, much more than on their U.S. counterparts. The U.S., however, is now pressuring Europe to downgrade its ties to China. The center of world economy is shifting, with Russia and the global south, including China, now accounting for 65% of the world's GDP, measured in PPP. From 1950 until the present, the U.S. share of the global GDP has fallen from 27% to 15%. The growth of the U.S. GDP has also been declining for more than five decades, has now fallen to only about 22% a year. It has no large new markets in which to expand. The West suffers from an ongoing general crisis of capitalism, as well as the consequences of long-term tendency of the rate of profit to decline. 
So let me explain what I think I'm reading and understanding. You know, that after World War II, this is Eric Mann, you're on Voices from the Frontline. You know, the United States had complete control of the world economy. Russia was uh, destroyed by the German invasion, killing 25 million people. The People's Republic of China did not exist. And for those of us who are old enough, I was only a little, little kid, the boom in the post-war years led to America being a terrific place to live if you were white and not very good if if you were black. But all the TVs and all the appliances and all the houses and all the ticky-tacky and the levitowns and cars, with Eisenhower creating the the first national highway system, led to a massive expansion of the U.S. after it had just dropped an atom bomb on the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So that was the period of U.S. unparalleled hegemony including that the United States rebuilt the Nazi Germany and Nazi Japan to try to fight the communists. 1949, the communists take over China. 1959, the communists take over Cuba. So now you have Russia, Cuba, China. You have the Eastern Bloc, which is socialist countries in the orbit of uh, Russia. And then, of course, you have the long war in Vietnam from basically 1919 or before to the present, but certainly in the period of 55 to 75 when the U.S. was in charge. So what do we get out of this? That there was a moment when the world was the U.S. oyster as it was, but now it's not. You can see it in L.A. I mean, Karen Bass has come to power with the pledge to try to end houselessness in L.A., but you know that this is a reflection of a declining economy where most of the people are black, or I should say 50% of the houseless are black. You know, there's a uh, Gelson's in Hollywood, and yeah, I shop there. And now there's big houseless encampments there. So... The houseless are taking over the city, you could say, in a positive way. I mean, what are they supposed to do? (laughs) They're building their homes, right? America believes in homeowning, so they're building their own home. Uh, Have your wages gone up? The workers, uh, the SEIU workers are on strike because they can't live on their wages. So what do we do? Basically, the United States' answer is let's have a war with the People's Republic of China. It's also sad because at one point, Germany, France, other countries were more in contradiction to the United States. You know, I mean, they could uh, oppose what the United States was doing. Now, what Vijay is saying in the team is that the United States is imposing a dictatorship on Germany, on France, on Japan. You know, Japan used to be demilitarized. Now, Japan is becoming a military power, allegedly, in Asia. What? To have a war with China, to be a stalking horse for the United States. 
So this is scary, scary stuff, right? And this is Eric Mann. This is Wake Up and Smell the Revolution, or this morning, Wake Up and Smell Climate Change and the U.S. Effort to Take Over the World and the U.S. Effort to Have a War with China. Now, I'm looking for Gary Baca. I'll take you in terms of transparency. He is on break. He's been here for all morning. I don't blame the guy. But I'm trying to get to Channing Martinez on the phone. And Channing, hang in there because when Gary gets back, we will connect you. So now, folks, I'm going to get to a second article. And then there's a little bit of positiveness. And the positiveness is the alliance of Russia and China. So for those of you who are anti-China, for those of you who have legitimate criticisms of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, let me break it to you. If Russia and China did not build a strong enough alliance, oh, good, Gary, hi. I've been looking for you. There's no problem, no criticism. See if we can get him on now. Because he's about to go to, uh, 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 this is full transparency radio, just between two human beings. So we're going to try to get Channing Martinez on the line, who's, first of all, to just interrupt my voice, and secondly, because he's about to go to Roosevelt High School for a demonstration in support of both the local uh, SEIU, local, I believe it's 399, which are the uh, school workers, and also very excited that the UTRA is is backing them, which is very good. So, can we get? Uh, we're going to get. Okay, all right. So, until Channing gets on the line, I'm not ready to sing. So, I want to just tell you a little bit about. I want to read you the first paragraph of something that's hopeful. And then we're going to get to Channing. Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping's trip to Russia offers a symbolic shot in the arm to his increasingly isolated Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, and highlights Xi's determination to push back against American power in the world, experts and former U.S. officials say. Imagine that. Push back against American power in the world. Now, calling each other dear friends, The two leaders held informal talks in Moscow for almost four and a half hours Monday, the Russian state news agency TASS reported, with talks between their full delegation set for Tuesday. In televised remarks after greeting Xi inside the Kremlin, Putin said he had carefully studied China's recent proposal for ending the war in Ukraine, where Beijing has tried to portray itself as a potential peacemaker. So what's interesting about that, that the United States is threatened that China is coming out to try to create peace in the Ukraine while the United States wants a war in the Ukraine. So China is stepping up as a world power. China is also working with Russia to form a bloc against the United States, which he is. Are they ready? Uh, yes, we got uh, Channing on the line. And, you know, uh, Eric, we changed our whole show around. Now you want to sing? You want to sing? No, now? I'm not going to sing. You're not going to sing today? No. Okay. Okay. I, I'm still having stage fright. And, Gary, 
It's not your fault. It's my ha- trying to hang in there and do the show. Okay? So, so yeah, we have uh, Channing here right now. All right, well, thanks. unless he's ready, because he wasn't ready either. He he says he's got to go to a quiet place. I'm you ready. ready? Okay. All right. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to live radio, where human beings are trying to make something happen together. It's called the human factor. So, with that, hey, Channing Martinez, how you doing this morning? I am freezing cold, but I'm out here at Roosevelt High School. I just left the group, but uh, Hollenbeck Middle School, Roosevelt High School, and Breed Street Elementary School all just came together. There's about 300 teachers out here, uh, and uh, an educational staff from SEIU protesting and on strike for the first day of a three-day strike. Well, a frozen man in Los Angeles. So glad to hear from you, Channing. Um what are some of the issues that the strike's about? Well, the biggest issue that a lot of folks are talking about is that they want a 30% pay increase. And for SEIU employees, the typical SEIU employee makes about 25000 a year. Now, if you picture, we study and talk to bus riders who make about 18000 a year, even us, we're saying you can't live off of 18000 a year. It's not enough to pay your rent. It's not enough to pay any of your basic bills. And so they're asking for a 30% increase. That's their biggest demand. Well, you know what's funny about it is that a 30% raise, uh, if you're making 500000 then a 30% raise is 150000 If you're making 30000 a 30% raise is $9,000. That only gets you to $39,000, which is essentially the only way they can catch up. You know, I mean, $39,000 to feed a family. For those of you in, in LA who make more than $39,000, and you know you can't even get an apartment with that, this is well long overdue. Now, what's the position of the school board? My understanding is that... Well, I should say the superintendent. My understanding is that as of this weekend, the superintendent began by going to court and trying to get an injunction against the union saying that it was unlawful. Um, the judge sided with the union and say, said that it was a lawful um, protest, a lawful and so the union has gone forward. Um, they then, my understanding is that he then attempted to do a private meeting on Sunday with the SEIU, and um, those negotiations did not go anywhere. And so, as of right now, SEIU is waiting for the superintendent to come to the table and agree on the 30% increase. And what is he offering? That much I have not I have not seen any news on what he's offering five percent. Oh, got it. So he's offering five percent and he says that that's very generous because uh because he said so. And then he's he's uh first of all he's taken him to court, which is bizarre. And then he's offering them 5% and trying to prevent their strike. So the problem is that um, 
I think it's going to take a lot of support from the board, and I think we want to ask board members to take a stand in support of the school board, you know, the school staff. Uh, so you're out at Roosevelt. Tell us about Roosevelt High School. For a lot of our listeners, you know, they don't know about Roosevelt High School or they don't know enough. What's it like physically? Where are you? What's going on? Well, Roosevelt, for folks who don't know, was one of the sites, along with Garfield, that was, you know, fa- that became famous for the Chicana blowout. Um, and a lot today, they still carry on a lot of that legacy. And so every year they teach about the Chicana blowouts. They teach about the Japanese community that used to be here. Um, it's a huge campus. I mean, at least two or three acres large. Um, and so if you can imagine at Roosevelt alone, there there's something like, you know, at least 200 teachers and and additional staff that are out here that um, go in day in and day out um, working for students. Um, right now, Roosevelt High School, the actual physical campus is closed. Like, all the gates are closed. They don't even let the teachers park in there today. <laughs> so everyone's late, and teachers and staff are coming from everywhere because they're trying to park, you know, miles and miles away. Um, and when I just walked away, I saw Breed Street Elementary walking up, and I saw Hollenbeck uh, staff walking up as well. And so that was another additional, you know, 100, 150 folks coming out here. Um, right now, folks are out on Fort Street on the main street in front of Roosevelt, and um, there's almost enough people to block off the street. They're not doing that, obviously. <laughs> Until you organize them, right? Well, um, <laughs> now, let me be clear. Are the teachers striking today? Are, they, are the teachers not going in to teach? Yeah, the teachers are holding solidarity strike, um, and they... You know, they want to stand in solidarity with the cafeteria workers, right, with the campus aides, the bus drivers, with all of those classified who also really make the district go round. Well, I think what's great about that is, you know, I think he, uh, Cecily Maya Cruz and Alex Caputo Pearl before have been trying to move the union in a more progressive direction. I think they're succeeding. You know, too often the the well, the I mean the teachers are not well paid at all. Uh, they have you know pretty unbearable jobs themselves. But the teachers at times have sort of sat out the struggle of the lower paid workers. I'm very interested that the courts are allowing the UTLA to have a so-called solidarity strike. But what's great about it? is you have all the people who run the schools, right? The janitors, the bus drivers who who run the school buses, the uh, cafeteria workers, along with the teachers, are on strike. Um, now, you're with the Strategy Center's uh, Strategy and Soul Social Justice Clubs. Um, what are you trying to get the students to understand? Well... One of the things that we've been trying to get them to understand is understand how much power that they have, right? Um, and, and they're beginning to understand it, but I don't think, 
I I still need to read more to be able to pass along more to them. But I'm trying to get them to understand the whole structure of the school and how it is so important for students to support the folks that are literally working and putting their lives on the line for them, right? I mean, when you think about SEIU workers, I mean, my mom worked in the Children's Center um, for at least 15 years, and she barely made $18,000 a year, right? How much? Um, uh, barely made $18,000 Right, right, right. And so when you talk about someone that's still coming to work every day, making basically slave labor, and, you know, they they come and, you know, sometimes the students aren't that, that filled with gratitude, right? <laughs> just be quite frank, right? Sometimes they're not just serving lunch. They're not just picking up trash. They're also being a an adult on campus helping to supervise students, both not just as a disciplinarian, but also as someone that you've come talk to on the emotional level, on the social level, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, they are putting their lives in um, day in and day out to support these students. And so one of the struggles I'm trying to have with students is a struggle of gratitude, that a lot of these folks aren't making a lot of money, and they're still coming to support you because they really do care about you. And I think you should get off your butt and care about them back and be out on these strike lines. Well, you're involved, you know, that they should, you should tell them that, you know, in the Queen's Gambit, the young woman learned chess from the janitor and that, you know, that the, the working class uh, staff, as you pointed out, have more empathy, you know, uh, do more than their job because the schools are militarized and often they're a face of humanity, as he said, that go beyond their job. And then the other thing you're involved in is a struggle for gratitude, which we all know is in short supply in this country. So uh, I like the fact that you're challenged, you know, at the Strategy Center, you know, we're trying, look, we're just trying, folks, but we're trying to both have gratitude and have moral struggle with people. You know what I mean? That we're trying to not just tell people what they want to hear, but what we think they need to hear. So... Uh, there's a couple of really good teachers with whom you work in, in Roosevelt who are providing leadership. Why don't you tell me about them? Yeah, I don't know if I should give her names. You're allowed to. They're just teachers doing a good thing. Yeah, I think we we know definitely the RJ teacher here, and then we have our own teacher sponsor. Um, and I think we know about seven teachers here that are providing leadership um, some, you know, folks have brought donuts and food and breakfast. Other folks have volunteered and brought their own candies from home. <laughs> um, there's a lot of umbrellas out here, obviously. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really is a community. And so I, I also see at least one of our teacher sponsors that's trying to be like a traffic control, make sure people are not getting hit by cars. And uh, there's a lot of different uh, things that are going on. That everyone's just stepping up to the volunteer. Well, Channing, thanks for being our voice from the front lines. Seriously, thanks for being up at 6.30 and uh, being in front of Roosevelt High School. Uh, I urge people to get in touch with SEIU. Is it 399? Is that right? 
Local 99. I'm sorry, SEIU Local 99, and get in touch with the UTRA, but mainly call SEIU Local 99, sorry, and ask them how they how you can get in help, find out where their demonstrations are. Uh, small amounts of solidarity showing up on the picket line. You know, voices, we say, this is your national movement building show. Uh, wake up and smell the revolution and get involved. So this is another example where the strategy center says, look, you can come. Oh, yeah, tell us about the film Thursday night just for a minute because, again, listeners, it would be great if you could meet Channing on the picket line at Roosevelt. It would be great if you could come see the film. You know, every week we try to offer you something to do. So briefly, Channing, tell them about the film, and then I'm going to get back to China. Absolutely. It's going to be the screening of Bus Riders Union, which is a really good documentary that chronicles tactics and strategies and theory of transformative organizing. Um, and it follows the struggle around buses, right? Around what we were calling trans racism and Metro's care of trans racism. It follows Eric, obviously, right? Um, Kikans Ramsey. Uh, and so many others. Sorry, my mind is at the strike right now. But on Thursday, it's going to be our first full, um, fully, I don't know how to call it, fully ticketed event at Strike the Soul since the beginning of the pandemic. We have only 100 seats available, and we hope to sell 100 tickets, if not 120. Um, and... The, the most important thing is we're urging groups to come as well, right? We're urging folks to call the strategy and get in touch with me, get in touch with Eric, get in touch with Barbara um, to get actual sales for your groups. Um, and go on, they can go on, uh, they can go on strategycenter.org, right? They can go on strategycenter.org the or you can go on Eventbrite and look up the strategy center and our event will pop up. Eventbrite, that's a cool thing. We made it to Eventbrite and look up the strategy center. Thanks, Channing. I'm going to tell them a little bit about Haskell and you stay warm and thank you for being with us. Thanks so much. So that was Channing Martinez out in the field. The thing I want to tell you about the film is I don't know how many of you know Haskell Wexler. Um, it's sad about history. Haskell Wexler died, I don't know if now, five or six years ago, perhaps. Haskell Wexler was, who made the film Bus Riders Union, one of the great cinematographers of all time. He won three Academy Awards, including Coming Home and, and uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. He came in and said he wanted to do a film about the Bus Riders Union, and he said, I think I can do it in three months. And we laughed, but he came to love us and spent three years with us. So it's a feature-length documentary, and it was submitted uh, for Best Documentary for the Academy Awards. It was not accepted, but there's, you know, thousands and thousands of great documentaries that don't get nominated. But it's a feature-length one of the finest documentaries about organizing. So if you're interested, go on Eventbrite and check it out. So I'm going to end with telling you more about China. And 
I think the most important thing I want to talk about uh, is to read you this article as I was doing about China and Russia because VJ has already indicated that um, the United States is planning to have a war with China. And uh, KJ No is saying the U.S. is set on a path to war with China. What is to be done? Uh, so, uh, let's see. Uh, today we're facing a similar situation. The U.S. is escalating rapidly towards a shooting war with China, and similar absurd, astonishing, and monstrous lies are being spread. In fact, the U.S. is already engaged in multi-domain hybrid warfare with China. This is warfare just below the threshold of direct military engagement. On the ground, this involves, one, economic warfare, trade sanctions and tariff war, as well as technological warfare attempted to seizure of Chinese companies, such as TikTok, attacks on China's international SG contracts, sanctions on the primary and secondary supply chains of key sectors of Chinese industry, such as Huawei's semiconductor supply chain, attacks on Ant Financial IPO, also strategic weapons, surveillance, and 400 offensive bases, the Pacific pivot, as uh, Barack Obama indicated, the use of air bases in Taiwan for military surveillance, and plans to station intermediate-range nuclear missiles all along Chinese periphery, civil subversion, color revolution, urban terrorism, destabilization and delegitimate operations in Hong Kong and other places where China has interest, including millions of dollars of funneled for organization and training and encrypted communication infrastructure built to coordinate anti-government activities. Academic warfare through the FBI's China Initiative. Every 10 hours, a case is opened against a Chinese student or researcher in the U.S., Currently, 2,700 cases, <clears throat> and all Chinese students are considered potential non-traditional collectors and spies involved in a thousand grains of sand collection strategy. Information warfare, last but not least, we're seeing total information warfare. The stories about so-called massive human rights abuses, Chinese concentration camp, Chinese made and released COVID, China's harmed us economically. China has stolen its way to the top. China is suppressing independent Hong Kong, a part of this information attack. Has China threatened the U.S.? Is the U.S. at risk from China? Is this war justifiable by any means? Is it legal? Do the citizens of the U.S. want to go to war? Could the U.S. even fight, let alone win a war with China? A careful, reasoned approach to these questions would lead to one say no. Before we try to play whack-a-mole with the blatant war propaganda, a more useful and clarifying approach is to ask, why is the U.S. telling those lies to go to war? So I urge you, it's by the uh, K.J. No of the Quao Collective newspaper, Q-I-A-O. So let me tell you a thought I have. This Eric Mann... You're on Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. Wake up and smell the revolution. <clears throat> Let me ask you this. Given these provocations 
effort to destroy another country that has no intention of hurting the United States. What do you plan to really do about it? How much do you want to put your body on the line to build a movement against the war in China for U.S. war? And my answer is very few people are doing it. There is China is not the enemy initiated by um, uh, Code Pink. The strategy says is trying to do some education. But let me tell you a thought. I really believe that the only way there'll be an anti-war movement in the United States is after a U.S.-provoked war against China, a nuclear war in which half the U.S. population will be destroyed and a significant amount of the Chinese population will be destroyed. Then maybe we can talk about a peace movement because right now there is no peace movement. The U.S. people as a group are fascist people. You can't have a fascist state with anti-fascist people. You can't have an imperialist country with anti-imperialist people. It's not how it works. The average person, including you, and at times me, wakes up in the morning in U.S. imperialism and carries out their life, while the U.S. is doing everything it can to destroy one of the most hopeful experiences. So, Calling each other dear friends, the two leaders held informal talks. The three-day state visit underscores how Xi, unlike his predecessors, wants to position himself as a world-shaping leader and his country as a counterweight to America's long-standing global dominance. Uh, Xi Jinping wants to show the world that he's a statesman, said Brian Hart, a fellow with the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, meaning a group of people studying how to destroy China, and that Beijing wants to play a constructive role. You hear that? Beijing wants to play a constructive role in the world, which the United States has not wanted to do. Washington has criticized Xi's trip as giving Putin diplomatic cover after the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant last week for the Russian leader on charges of involvement in the alleged abduction of Ukrainian children, which his government denies. Beijing says the court is using double standards. Now, let's just be very clear. The United States does not support the International Criminal Court against its own crimes. The United States would not deal with the International Criminal Court's uh, sanctions against killing millions of people in Iraq. The United States isolates itself from all international institutions. But just like, of course, the United States boycotts the United Nations when it wants to and then uses the United Nations to invade Serbia and uh, Bosnia. So the United States is the greatest warmonger in the world. The White House urged Xi to use his visit to press Putin to respect Ukraine's sovereignty and withdraw his troops. But officials said they were concerned Xi would instead reiterate calls for a ceasefire that leaves Russia's territorial gains in place, part of a 12-point program from Beijing that contains few specifics as met with skepticism from the U.S. and its allies. Well, it may be generating skepticism from the U.S. and its allies. 
but it's gaining a lot of respect from countries all over the world. China is a force for peace. Russia, you may not want to hear it, is a force for peace. The Russian invasion, and it was, of Ukraine was a last-ditch effort to protect Russian sovereignty. That's what I believe. We know the United States is trying to encircle and destroy Russia and bring in what it calls regime change. The United States is trying to encircle, which it is, and destroy China and bring in regime change. The United States is using Taiwan, which is part of China, as a military base against which to attack the People's Republic of China. So I sort of end with this, folks. Uh, the International Governmental Group on Climate Change is telling you that we're at a tipping point. We're told that there's floods and famine and drought in Africa. We know the United States is moving daily. Imagine a war against TikTok. And we know that the masses of the United States people are imperialist and fascists as a group. There is an answer, which is building a resistance. That's what the people who are fighting Cobb City are doing. That's what Channing and the teachers are doing at Roosevelt High School. That's why I get up in the morning to do voices from the front lines. Come out to the film. Go on Eventbrite. Check out the Strategy Center and the great film Haskell Wexler's bus rides. Even if you know Haskell Wexler, please come out to just celebrate his amazing life. So what do we do? I wake up in the morning and ride in the rain to KPFK so Gary Bach and I can talk alone about changing the world. I'll see you next Tuesday. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement-building show. Thanks to Gary Baca for being our engineer. Thanks to Julian Lamb for producing the show and producing the music. Take good care. I'll see you next Tuesday at 8. All power to the people.